You're listening to the Quince podcast. As urban areas became the epicenters of the COVID-19 pandemic, it sparked several conversations about the frailties of Indian cities. The lack of affordable housing, the lack of adequate social safety nets, public health risks owing to poor sanitation, and most importantly, the vulnerabilities of informal settlements. In this episode, we look at some underlying issues that the pandemic has put forth for sustainable urban planning and the need for effective, affordable housing. Welcome to the Quince fortnightly podcast, Land of a Billion. This podcast is produced in association with the Property Rights Research Consortium, or PRRC, which is supported by Omidyar Network India, an investment firm focused on social impact. PRRC is a network of leading think tanks and research organizations working to collaborate and drive policy action in the field of land, housing and property rights in India. My guests today are Vedahi Tandal and Sahil Gandhi. Vedahi was formerly a junior fellow at the IDFC Institute in Mumbai and Sahil is a fellow at the Centre for Social and Economic Progress. Vedahi's research lie in the areas of new institutional economics, urban economics, urban planning, land governance and political economy. Sahil's research interests are in areas of urbanization in India, land and housing markets, and metropolitan governance. Thank you so much for joining us, Vedahi and Sahil. I'm looking forward to our conversation. Thank you. Thanks a lot, Abhishek. Really looking forward to this. Yeah, so uh, the goal of our podcast is to understand what it takes to secure land rights for a billion. And in this specific episode, we're trying to apply the lens of adversity, uh, particularly given the context of the pandemic, to understand the underlying governance frameworks in our city and uh, perhaps what the role that secure land rights can play in aiding our transition towards more robust and resilient urban centres. If you have to look at what the role cities have been playing historically, uh, you can think of them as centres for economic opportunities and social opportunities, right? And at the same time, because they tend to be dense, because they have a lot of people coming in usually also people from lower economic backgrounds, you see that, you know, there is a demand for a certain type of housing which is not met within within cities in India. And that means that they have to fend for themselves, which means a large uh, informalization, looking at different opportunities, uh, which are, uh, you know, making, creating opportunities rather for them to, to sort of live in and, and survive and, and make, uh, you know, make their livelihoods. And that, that sort of has led to sort of unplanned informal outcomes, which has been sadly to the detriment of these uh, individuals themselves. Right, right. So given the complexity around land and housing in urban areas, could we start by broadly looking at how the nature of informal housing and service delivery in urban India has led to mixed outcomes of the policies that were announced to tackle the coronavirus pandemic. What kind of outcomes have we seen historically owing to informal urban housing? And is there a way that this can be correlated to the larger urban policy agendas? Um, and perhaps if we can you know, look at what the shifts have been over time. 
this is not the first pandemic that Indian cities have uh, suffered from. You know, what, what has happened is, of course, the frequency has reduced. So we haven't had a big major crisis of this sort in, say, a century. So we've perhaps forgotten uh, what it has been like to live through pandemics. And the fact that historically there, there have been such instances means that we really also need to look back and think about what happened then, what was the response of the governments back then, in, and what were the institutions uh, that were created that continue to have uh, an impact even today in terms of how we respond to uh, pandemics in the in the present state, right? So, for instance, in the in the early twentieth century, the you know we had plague outbreaks, we had cholera outbreaks, we had uh, you know again the influenza epidemic that really badly affected cities like Bombay, and that led to the creation of the Epidemic Diseases Act, which is currently still in evoked uh, when we are de- dealing with pandemics today. And uh, that also sort of meant that administrations could not turn a blind eye to uh, how a majority of the poor were living and the conditions in which they they were living in. Of course, back then, things like the germ theory and modern medicine was not very well known. You know, back then there was there was this idea that that there may be poisonous gases or the miasma theory that could be creating these diseases. And therefore, there was a lot of uh, emphasis placed on sanitation, on making sure that housing is well ventilated. There's a lot of sunlight. And that sort of had an impact on how we planned cities. And uh, Bombay saw it. So you saw certain quarters of the erstwhile, you know, cramped colonies being changed and revamped. You saw suburban areas, which are right now, I mean, they're bang in the city, but back then they were considered suburbs. Uh, You know, you saw them being well planned out and better housing and better open spaces uh, being created to sort of avoid this situation where you would have, you know, diseases spreading rapidly. So we've had this response at one point in time in history. And uh, and then, of course, we no longer have a colonial government. We, you know, post-independence, we didn't pay as much attention to decentralization and urban um, sort of urban governance. So it was all basically led by state governments. And then there's also been a gradual neglect because of lack of capacity of governments to think about, uh, you know, public health, public sanitation, and also provision of of decent uh, housing for the poor. And it's just the, the public health aspect of all of this has sort of been neglected, right? You, you think of, uh, of uh, informal housing, but you don't think of the public health uh, aspects associated with it. Now, with the pandemic, the, the current pandemic, what we saw was the slums quickly getting overwhelmed by the disease. So we saw that the, the areas that were, that were sort of rich or upper middle class areas were, were able to sort of protect themselves. The kind of containment policies that were put in place where, you know, everyone had to sit in one house and, you know, not get out of their, their localities. All of this is, is well and good if you have a nice, uh, you know, separate bathroom situation in your house and you have plenty of space to socially distance indoors. But that's not the case in our slums. Um, and so, in fact, you probably may increase the risk of people contracting the disease because they were in closed spaces and not well ventilated spaces and and i think that this sort of uh thinking of like containment 
is it made sense in a certain context but not in the context of slums and this was again borne out by recent research findings right we had a zero survey that was done in july august and then in october in in three wards in mumbai which found that more than 50% of the population in slums was exposed to the virus i mean they had uh, antibodies and uh, about only about 17 to 18% of the non slum households had exposure to uh, the covid uh, 19 virus so that's the kind of you know disparity we saw because of the policy policies that were implemented by the government to contain the spread of the disease right 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 so let's try to understand this a little more if we look at the policy framework we see many schemes and initiatives targeting planned affordable public housing whether it's the central pradhan mantri awas yojana or its offshoots or the various state level schemes there seems to be a significant acknowledgement of the gaps but if we look at the numbers of the actual outcomes of these schemes a sizable portion of the units built are either left unoccupied or are illegitimately captured by those who are not supposed to be the beneficiaries so why aren't these schemes and measures able to fill the gaps effectively right abhishek that's a great question and uh... I think uh, the moment these schemes become more effective then uh, I I believe the problem of public health would uh, reduce because uh, these uh, these uh, housing uh, complexes are quite well planned it's just that they haven't been that effective so so for example like in 2016 uh, when we looked at data of pradhan mantri awas yojana and uh, other centrally sponsored schemes we found that 23% of the houses constructed were vacant and and that was a shocker because these uh, these units were constructed for the poor and they are highly subsidized so why were these units uh, vacant so from my reading and research on this topic i i i come to a conclusion that there are two big reasons why these schemes have been ineffective the first one is that location matters in cities and when you have these new public housing units coming up in peripheries which are really far away from employment locations then there is going to be this added transportation cost that households have to bear and households like with very low incomes would not want to bear those transportation costs and and that that's one big reason why uh, there is high vacancy of public housing units which come up in the periphery because there are time costs and transportation costs associated with traveling now there was this one paper the paper title moving to opportunity which was published in the american economic journal in 2017 by sharon bernard erica field and rohini pande that looked at this topic they defined that public housing uh, public housing was not taken up by the beneficiaries in urban india because the units were coming up in the periphery of cities which would lead to a loss of social and caste networks for beneficiaries so the poor really depend on these informal networks when there are income shocks and when you have these housing units which are away from these networks then then households just don't want to go there and right now when we look at the pradhan mantri awas yojana like there is a lot of financial outlays but i haven't come across data on where these units are coming up like where exactly is it i i try to hunt out uh, hunt uh, hunt for this data but i couldn't unfortunately uh, find it so so one thing that would be great that the ministry can do is just start releasing where these new units are coming up now coming to the second reason why we see this uh, ineffectiveness of the schemes is that when we have such a high unmet demand 
then the little subsidized supply meant for low income groups will get captured by the mi- middle income households so the low income households will will ultimately sell their property or rent it out to the middle income uh, group and perhaps the middle income group with political and bureaucratic networks could illegally acquire this housing so for whom the uh, units are meant for they actually don't go to them they go to the other households from the other income groups who are not supposed to be in this housing so these are broadly the two reasons why we see ineffectiveness of these uh, schemes right right and we've already started talking about the the rental housing market and i was curious if there's anything more you'd like to share about the high rates of vacancy your uh, recent research found that landlords often intentionally keep their houses out of the rental market and the number stands at about 1 in 10 urban houses are lying vacant could you perhaps explain why this vacancy exists despite a seemingly large demand in fact some of the big cities like mumbai has 15% of its housing stock vacant bangalore has 12% which is closer to the national average gurgaon which is in the periphery of delhi has 26% of its housing vacant and one hand you have tremendous households in slum on the other hand you have vacant housing and so i, I wanted to enter into this field and do some research on this in, in so that we can bring back some vac- vacant housing into the rental housing market so at the center for social and economic progress uh, i've co-authored this paper with professor richard green uh, who is uh, at uh, the university of southern california and shauli patranabis who is a research assistant at the center for social and economic progress and we we, we try to look at reasons for uh, vacancy so so there are two three reasons for this one is on the on the return sides of things and we know that rental units when when landlords rent them out the gross rental yields are 3 to 4% which is extremely low when you compare it to safe investments like fixed deposit so so why would why would a landlord rent it out if there are risks associated with it so let me clarify if there were no risks associated with renting out then a rational landlord will definitely rent out the property but in india there are tremendous risks in renting out properties now these risks come from the legacy of the rent control act and the fact that judiciary takes forever to come up with a verdict if if there is a landlord and a tenant dispute which goes to a court then it could take 5 to 10 years for that dispute to get resolved so so we tried to uh, do a causal analysis of whether the rent control act has a bearing on vacancy rate whether ineffective judiciary has a bearing on vacancy rate and what we find is that states with pro tenant rent control acts have a higher vacancy rate and this this is not a surprise like everyone knew that and so if if the state has greater protection for a tenant then a landlord will be apprehensive to rent out the property to a tenant which 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 makes sense and the second thing is that if if the judiciary is ineffective in resolving a conflict then in those areas the landlord does not rent out their property to uh, tenants you see a much higher vacancy in areas where the judiciary is ineffective so so india where as compared to other developing countries in terms of vacancy rate is actually doing better so mexico in fact has a vacancy rate of 14% which is higher than india's vacancy rate 
and china uh, has a vacancy rate of 20% so when you compare india to other developing countries we are doing uh, pretty well but when we compare india to developed countries like france usa or canada the vacancy rates are much higher and at even lower vacancy rates in these developed countries uh, as compared to india's vacancy rate they have introduced several policies to address uh, the vacancy and one of them is the vacant housing tax so france in fact introduced a vacant housing tax uh, to address vacancy problems and there was a paper uh, which uh, did a causal relationship between a vacant housing tax and the reduction of vacancy rates in uh, france and what the paper finds is that the implementation of this tax did lead to a reduction in vacancy rates in uh, france i think uh, understanding disputes over land and property has been a recurring part of our conversations on land of a billion uh, so i'm glad we got into that i'd like to understand some of the more structural issues in terms of governance of indian cities uh, could you perhaps explain with uh, an example or two some of the key issues with urban local governance which is uh, critical to housing and urban development policies sure i think this uh, sort of has to be understood within the context of the general federal setup and decentral the nature of decentralization that we have in the country we know that with the 74th constitutional amendment act the urban local bodies were recognized as legitimate tiers of government and what the act did was it, it there was a schedule in the act the 12th schedule which uh, listed out all the functions that the urban local bodies had to carry out so there's a whole roster of this it includes things like urban planning land use planning it also includes slum improvement and upgradation and it also includes urban poverty alleviation so there's a lot of these functions that the urban local body is supposed to take care of but in reality what's happened is that you know undertaking these responsibilities requires uh, resources it requires finances it requires capacity within the uh, personnel to be able to actually design think through implement policies or schemes pertaining to these activities and here we find that uh, by and large the task of improving financial financial capacity as well as resource capacity within urban local bodies has remained un, you know unfinished uh, we have most urban local bodies relying on uh, transfers from the states and transfers from the center for their revenues very low capacity for them to raise their own revenue specifically even property tax which is supposed to be the source for urban local bodies has not been uh, utilized to its uh, full potential and therefore what has happened is most of the provision with respect to slum improvement slum upgradation has happened through state government para staters so for the case of maharashtra we have um, the mahada which is the maharashtra housing and urban area development authority which is the sort of body that looks at low income and you know economically weaker section housing we even have the mmrda which is the metropolitan region development authority which is also under a, which is a state government parastatal so we have all of these taking up this role of uh, of slum improvement of housing provision for the poor uh because we simply don't find that capacity in the urban local body now why is this an issue it's an issue because ultimately like within the city you would ideally have need to have an empowered local body that is taking up these decisions 
because what has happened is the units are provided by the by the state or by the center but ultimately the task of providing drinking water providing sanitation taking care of solid waste management all of that falls on the city so having an integrated uh, you know role that that the city can play in both deciding and uh, you know deciding housing as well as providing amenities would be better because it would take care of this coordination issue but we don't see this happening again because we've not really thought about empowering urban local bodies uh, in a very serious sense because we see a reluctance from the state and then what ends up happening is an over reliance on things like centrally sponsored schemes so uh, you then have to rely on a smart cities mission or a jnnurm to sort of try and make sure that that you know urban governance is fixed but the harder problem to fix which is to have adequate uh, decentralization goes unresolved mm-hmm. and are there any examples that uh, where you feel like you know some states or some uh, you know uh, regions of the country have done uh, better in this regard in urban decentralization unfortunately there are not many examples because we only see uh sort of metropolitan authorities or state government parastatals being involved in slum improvement slum upgradation and it's also because of the fact that land is also a state subject so the state ends up having a lot of say in in both sort of government uh, ordinances as well as land laws being passed at the state level i am not aware of like a an example where the city authorities have have played a role in slum improvement or in in slum upgradation and have done so successfully it's normally that the state government ends up doing this abedi is right that uh, the cities don't have uh, too much power but there was this scheme which wasn't again implemented by the city called the sites and services scheme which was a world bank funded uh, scheme which brought in the state government and uh, th- that scheme had uh, really good uh, outcomes when it comes to housing so so the underlying premise of that scheme was that uh, there there were certain sites in the periphery of the city that were identified and services were already provided within those uh, land areas so so the pipes were laid out it was well planned and those land was then given to beneficiaries so what happened was that as the incomes of the beneficiaries started increasing then the the household started uh, incrementally building upon that piece of land perhaps started off with a with a smaller unit as incomes increased further they strengthened that unit made it into a two story apartment and uh, you you see a, a very well planned area wherever these sites and services have come up and and it's not only well planned it's also very it's also very mixed so so one good thing that the sites and services did is that it it had a mixed uh, housing component so some of it was given to the richer households some of it were given to the poorer households and you see a very well uh, planned area where sites and services came up in uh, mumbai yes I, i think that's a nice example that we should look into uh, while i was actually preparing for this interview i also learned that at uh, other forums whether he you've discussed how urban governance systems suffer from some structural flaws in terms of electoral accountability and financing could we discuss that some more uh, and perhaps uh, if we can touch upon how the gst system has changed the financing side of things 
uh, I know that these are perhaps two different questions, but they were sparked by what you were talking about in terms of the structural issues that plague governance in Indian cities. Sure. So the first part, which is about, you know, electoral accountability, we have that only in the fact that we have elections every five years to the municipal body. The main authority, though, still lies with the municipal commissioner. And the electoral sort of head, which is, say, the mayor of the city, does not end up having any real powers. And so what ends up happening is, again, the municipal commissioner is not directly elected. And the municipal commissioner is normally appointed by the state government. And so the municipal commissioner is not answerable to the mayor, but is answerable to the state. And state governments don't tend to look at capital cities, especially, uh, you know, if you look at the big cities like Mumbai and so on, they don't tend to, uh, there tends to be little accountability because they're not from, they're not elected from urban constituencies, they're elected from rural constituencies, right? Um, And that tends to therefore further dilute any sort of, you know, democratic accountability that, that could have happened uh, where the people actually can question those in power and, and you know, if they're not performing well, can actually vote them out. Because yes, you can vote out uh, your uh, mayor and your councillor, uh, you know, in the next five years. But how much is that going to change the realities? My sense is not much because ultimately, like, the, the city is not being run by them, so to speak, right? On your second question about, you know, revenues and and what effect does GST have on them? So GST, I think, has an effect on in one particular instance, which is the case of Octroy, which is a tax that was levied on goods that enter a a city. Uh, And some of the states had them. Maharashtra, I think, was the last to sort of disband Octroy. And Mumbai, for instance, uh, heavily relied on Octroy because you can, it's a financial capital. So the kind of trades and the kind of goods and services that come in and go out of the city is, is on a, you know, we're looking at large volumes. So they were running a lot through Octroy. And I'm not saying that Octroy was a great thing in terms of like the, you know, it was not an efficient tax, uh, but it was an important revenue source. So GST led to the, uh, you know, the, abolishment of Octroy, which led to the city suffering from a massive revenue crunch. Uh, And this means that it then relied on a property taxes, but it also started heavily relying on things like uh, their FSI premium policy. And, you know, so where you can purchase FSI if you're a builder by making a payment to the uh, to the municipal body right right and just to give some context to our listeners fsi or floor space index in a multi-story building is the ratio of the total built-up area to the size of the plot area it is built on and the fsi usually indicates how many floors a builder can construct on a particular site which is determined by the government and varies across states so you started and looking at these FSI tools, which are actually supposed to be planning tools, right? They're they're supposed to determine, you know, how you know, where where what can be built, uh, you know, wh- what is the capacity of the of the area to take on board more more built up space and so on. Instead of looking at it as a planning tool, it ended up being a revenue generating tool. Uh, so that was like a sort of a distortionary effect of uh, you know of Octroi going or of GST coming. 
that sums it up nicely and offers a lot of clarity on how methods of local governance, affordable housing and resilient societies are all interconnected. Finally, I'd like to ask you a more forward-looking question and it's something that we ask all our guests. It's what will it take to secure land rights for a billion going forward? I think going forward, we need to start paying better attention to policy design when we look at both private and public housing. When we have policies in place for private housing, which means, you know, uh, things like how much you can build and what you can build and where you can build, which, which is what governs private construction within the city, we need to try and make sure that we drastically reduce the time and cost of building. So you need to have permissions and approval processes that are very simplified and easy to, to get. And also, we need to make sure that whenever we have any policies in place that are going to affect a large section of uh, of the city or or a large number of stakeholders, we need to anticipate unintended consequences of policies and hence try and minimize any sort of distortions that can come about. So what I mean by that is, is say, you know, things like the take the example of the Rent Control Acts, right? They were put in place for a specific objective, which is to protect the tenants, but perhaps better attention should have been paid into what is the incentive structure, what are the disincentives that it has on landlords, and therefore how does that distort the rental market as a whole? So you need to be better at designing them by looking at these unintended consequences. Secondly, we need to also try and rationalize the number of objectives that we expect any policy to satisfy. Because typically when a policy is introduced, you know, you say that, okay, this is going to lead to X, Y, Z, four, five objectives. And often you're going to lose track of what was the original intent of the policy. And this is exactly what has happened with the with the FSI premium policies, right? It was, is it in place because the city needs more revenues? Is it in place because uh, the city needs more housing? That needs to be sort of decided and and rationalized at the outset. And the third thing I would say is that, you, you know, when we're designing policies, resource and capacity constraints need to be front and center because this is what is going to make or break implementation. I mean, I would point to a specific example, which is the MMRDA's rental housing scheme. Uh, if you don't know about it, MMRDA, I think sometime in uh, 2012, 14 or something like that, had, had this rental housing scheme where uh, they got private developers to build housing for them, housing units. And then they were meant to rent these out to the lower income groups or the economically weaker sections. And there was a, a you know huge element of implementation because re- maintaining rental housing is not easy. You need to make sure... You, you need to fix rents, you need to identify tenants, you need to have a mechanism to collect the rents, uh, you need to make sure that property is maintained and, you know, there's a certain amount of uh, money kept for the upkeep of the properties and so on. And this was, I mean, there were models that were thought through. I mean, there were models that were proposed at the time, but there was no thinking through about, okay, have you identified agencies that would actually come up and, and third-party agencies that could do this or take on this function and because that didn't come through uh, ultimately you just ended up converting these rental units into affordable housing units and just sold them off to you know to buyers so it just happened because there was not much attention paid to implementation and capacity and things like that i think that's what 
I would say for policies to work, we should probably think about two, these two or three factors that you know need to be in place when you when we're designing policies. So just coming into uh, where Vedi left is that, and, and and adding to the unintended consequences of policies, is that when you have very uh, stringent regulations uh, in the housing market, you are going to see a lot of informality. And one form of informality that has emerged is that you see construction which is formal looking, but not given any permission, which is called unauthorized development. And that happens a lot in uh, major uh, cities. You see that in the periphery of Mumbai, you see that in the periphery of Jaipur, Hyderabad. And it's good that the markets are responding. But however, these buildings are of substandard quality. So during uh, a climate shock, during heavy rainfall, a lot of these buildings uh, break down and fall and there is tremendous loss of life. And that that's not an outcome that uh, a housing market uh, should have because uh, housing has to be governed and, and, and there has to be certain rules that these units have to follow. So one of the adverse effects of really regulated housing market is... Uh, uh, in a, in a way, uh, loss of life. So that that that's one thing that 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 should be addressed. So you need to relax some of these uh, uh, rules such that such that unauthorized development does not happen. And on the other hand, uh, as Vadi mentioned, is that the Rent Control Act is is one one such policy that has led to uh, unintended consequences. And you see that in Mumbai, you see a lot of dilapidated building in uh, uh, in South Mumbai where. Uh, Landlords do not take care of their property. And uh, again, during rainfall, these formal buildings, which are in dilapidated condition, just break down and, uh, and there's a severe loss of life. Now, now coming to slums, and, and the pandemic has shown us that slums bear a big brunt of uh, the spread of the virus and that the, the case fatality rate in, uh, in slum settlements is pretty high. So what should the government do when it comes to slums? And and, and 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 one does not require like new research on this. The, the one 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 thing which is a low hanging fruit is that perhaps all slum dwellers should be given property rights so that uh, once they are given property rights and one, the moment they they feel that they won't get evicted, then they will invest in their property. They they, they would uh, have toilets within their property. They would they would connect to water pipelines and and there will be a reduction in uh, crowding. Uh, at community uh, taps or community toilets. I think this is an obvious thing that one can uh, do. Thank you so much for joining us on Land of a Billion, Bedehi and Sahil. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you so much, Abhishek. This was a great conversation. This was a very eye-opening crash course on the linkages between urban development, service delivery and resilience of cities. I look forward to bringing you another episode of Land of a Billion in two weeks. To make sure you don't miss out on it, do subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and GeoSavan. Also, we'd love to hear from you about this podcast and what's working for you and what isn't. Do tweet or send us a message at prrc underscore India. And if you like our work, do consider sharing it. Take care and I'll see you in two weeks.
Thanks for listening. Log on to the Quince website and check out our other podcasts. 